Welcome to EK on the Go, recorded in the University District at Jack Straw Cultural Center. It's been said that Seattle is really a grouping of smaller neighborhoods, each defined by its own character. Well, adjacent to downtown Seattle, there's Capitol Hill. It's among the city's most densely populated areas and the historic home to the city's LGBTQ communities, full of nightlife, restaurants, cafes, acres of parks, public and private schools and universities, arts organizations, historic cemeteries, and more. Capitol Hill has made the national news as the site of the WTO protests in 1999, and then last year as the site of the CHOP. Capitol Hill's diversity of people is a reflection, perhaps, of the various buildings that are constructed to house them. Historically, the city's masters of industry chose to build mansions along Volunteer Park, but there's also houses, large and small, duplexes, and so forth, sprinkled throughout the district, along with the well-known brick apartment buildings built during the 20s and 30s. But perhaps most easily overlooked is the neighborhood's collection of mid-century apartment houses. Constructed after World War II to house the greatest number for the lowest cost, there are hundreds of such mid-century modern buildings throughout the neighborhood. And today we're going to get to explore them through the eyes of an artist, documentarian, and the community's leading historian. Today we'll spend time learning from two committed and engaged local community members what they found when documenting Capitol Hill's legacy of modernist apartment buildings, those constructed roughly between 1950 and 1970. We'll explore how studying overlooked aspects of the cityscape can open our eyes and make us more aware of our surroundings. And we're going to learn about some of the wonderful things that can happen when lots of different people from diverse backgrounds cluster together in the same neighborhood. Our guests today are visual artist Lana Blinderman and professional historian Tom Hoiser. And stick around. At the end of the show, we'll let you know how you can sign up for a walking tour of modernist apartment buildings in the neighborhood led by our guests. Hi, Lana. Hi, Ed. Welcome. Hello. So I'd love to know your journey, kind of what brought you to the neighborhood. Maybe, Lana, you could share your place of origin and what your journey is that brought you to Capitol Hill. Well, I was born in uh, Russia, early the Soviet Union, and I lived there till my early 20s. And then I moved to Israel, where I lived for about five years. And then I came to the greater Seattle in 1999. And I mostly lived on the east side because that's where my family before me had landed. And then at one point, there was a time of great transition in my life. I uh, divorced my then husband. I quit my job at Boeing. I let go of of my half of the house. And I went back to school to formally study photography. Where did you study? Uh, At Seattle University. And I was looking for a place to live that was close to the school, and I had always been intrigued and interested in Capitol Hill, mostly because of its architecture, but also because of its community. And so I was looking for housing, and I found an apartment uh, not far from St. Nicholas Church on 13th and Howell. And uh, I've been on Capitol Hill now for about eight years and uh, never, never looked back. <laughs> awesome. And then, Tom, what brought you to the neighborhood? What's your journey? So I'm originally from Chicago, and I came out here in 2004 essentially for an internet romance that didn't work out. That's kind of the, the short uh, version of it. And I kind of just gravitated towards Capitol Hill. It's just what uh, drew to me the most. And, uh, yeah, I've been here for 17 years. Most of that time I've been living on Capitol Hill. Great. And then how does history, how does your study of history as an academic profession and then a kind of active practice follow in? Yeah. So I uh, 
went to Seattle Central College first when I moved out here and then got my associate's degree, finished that. And then I went to University of Washington and graduated in 2008 with a degree in history. And then after graduating, I kind of just did a lot of different things for a while, trying to figure out what I could do with my history degree. And eventually I just discovered local history. And about late 2014, I just started writing uh, local history articles for the Capitol Hill Seattle blog for a few years. And then uh, in 2017, decided to co-found a historical society for the neighborhood. So, How did you have the epiphany that it was something that you wanted to do? Because that's a lot of work. I guess I got really interested in the history and I was really surprised that a historical society didn't exist. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, it really interested in me and I wanted to really just bring history forward for the neighborhood and bring more people together around it. So, Awesome. Did either of you bring in something to share today? Yes. Okay. Yes. What did you bring, Lana? I brought this very, very bad photograph of a firehouse in San Francisco. Okay. And that was before I was even remotely considering studying photography. I was actually studying to uh, study graphic design, but I traveled to San Francisco and we were walking around and I just had the disposable, you know, film camera. It was before digital cameras. And I saw this firehouse and it caught my attention and I just had to take a picture of it. And of course, everything's out of focus and everything's overexposed. But just something about it stuck with me. And I consider it my first architectural photo. And I, I keep it in a place of honor. Tom? So this is probably one of my earliest uh, connections with local history. Uh, and so this comes off the building that used to house uh, Vivace Coffee before uh, everything was demolished for the light rail. So this was, would have been at the northeast corner of Broadway and Denny, if I'm remembering it correctly. But basically, this is, is I, I don't know what you exactly call this architectural feature. I'm going to, for the moment, kind of call it a medallion. But it's this really heavy metal piece, and it has a floral pattern on it. And you find these capped on the outsides of brick walls because uh, there's a circle in the middle, and that's where the rebar that provides additional reinforcement to the building uh is just capped on, you cap this on too, because the rebar comes out of the wall and then you put these little de decorative features. And you'll actually see these a lot in St. Louis, but they have stars instead of flower patterns. And so they're very iconic in, uh, in that respect, kind of regionally, they're, different places kind of have different types. Uh, and so I had a lot of free time back then. You know, you think 2009, economy is not going very well uh, and I had just graduated. So how was I going to, like, what was I gonna do with my time? So I spent so many hours photographing all the demolition that happened and I was walking by and the one of the construction workers was cutting this thing off of some of the rubble and I asked if I could have one and he just grabbed it and handed it to me wow. so yeah huh. so there you have it's it beautiful. if you want yeah. to hold it yeah it's very heavy wow and it's uh, iron it looks like iron or cast yeah, iron cast yeah. iron very heavy so when would this be from I believe that building had been constructed roughly maybe 1918, 1919. I forget the exact date. What Talk was the building originally built for? Uh, it was a dealership. I think it might have been a Ford dealership. I know it changed a number of times uh, in fairly rapid succession. So uh, I know Rickenbacker was there for a bit uh, and maybe one other dealership. And yeah, so. Nice. And then just tell a little bit about your work as an architectural and a documentarian. Tell us a little bit about how that evolved. 
Well, so um, like I said, I started graphic design and I started freelancing in the early 2000s. And I was uh, still kind of looking around for what to study for my um, bachelor's degree. And I kind of gave myself time and then I looked back and I realized that I spent every weekend out in the field photographing. I thought, well, there's something there. There's a message here. And what I was always drawn to was architecture and industrial landscape. Okay. And occasional botanicals, but mostly just buildings and neighborhoods. And then I started doing it on purpose. And I uh, mostly, because I had, you know, I was raising kids and I had a family and I had a job and I was going to school. But I made it um, a point every weekend to go out and photograph uh, the banks of the Duwamish River. Huh. And, you know, just the, the neighborhoods, the industry, the river itself. And for those guys that may not know, the Duwamish River area is an industrially zoned? Is that right? Is that an industrial It is. Area? Yes, yeah. it is a river that was, uh, you know, it plays a very important role in, in the culture and livelihood of the Duwamish people. But it was industrialized and straightened out into a channel. And in, in the last decade or so, there's been a major cleanup effort led by the Duwamish tribe and um, a citizen and industry association. So there have been um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of work has been done to do that. But at that time, I just mostly was interested in what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And only later I became aware of sort of the, the social aspects of that area. And, um, and it also, you know, it makes me think until this day is just how much I owe to the Duwamish people as a photographer because mm -hmm. I came here as an immigrant and not only was I able to become an artist and exercise my art and craft on this land but also to document the river itself yeah, and especially you know the, the intersection for me the intersection of immigration and documentary photography I feel like I really owe the Duwamish people that debt and I guess the least I can do, the very least I can do is contribute to real rent to Duwamish, which is not a lot, but if everyone does it, that makes a little bit of a difference. Um, but from there, I realized I wanted to study photography more formally and know how to actually document architecture. So I took some classes at the University of Washington's Department of Built Environments, and uh, they were taught by John Stamets, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And he taught us how to properly document the building. So you don't, you make sure that the vertical lines are vertical, <laughs> the horizontal lines are horizontal, and you reflect all the elevations of the building. And I took two classes with John, and then I enrolled in the documentary program at Seattle University, and I studied with Claire Garut, who is uh, an incredible documentarian. And I just realized that just I want to document architecture. And that's basically what I was doing. So I do, I do have some other genres in my portfolio, but mainly it's just kind of day in and day out, mostly on Capitol Hill, but also other neighborhoods capturing what is there, what is disappearing, and all sorts of quirky things that kind of just form in neighborhoods. And I find that there's this combination of creative community and and creative buildings. Usually they're older buildings that kind of already accumulated that character. Mm -hmm. And there's this, you know, chemistry that happens that cannot just be generated on demand. So we have a historian who loves the neighborhood and has an interest in all epochs, right? And then we have a photographer who loves architecture. So how did you come together and how did this whole project get started? So 
Originally, Lana came to me with this idea of documenting uh, mid-century apartment buildings in the neighborhood. And admittedly, my interest was not very strong in that you know, era of architecture or really even that, just, just generally that part of history. I was more focused on early 20th century, late 19th century. And I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. That was probably in 2019. And then we revisited it later on and we applied for, for the grant in uh, early 2020. And uh, the more I started to look at it, the more I kind of just started to take interest in it. And so I really have to credit Lana for kind of opening my eyes to this era of architecture that I wasn't really that interested in before. And so how did you and Lana then define the project itself? You applied for a grant through what organization? Uh, for Culture. For Culture. And what is For Culture for our guests that don't know? It's a cultural agency of King County that finances projects usually outside of Seattle, but also in Seattle if they pertain to historic preservation. And then how did you define the project itself? What was the, what, what was the deliverable or what was the goal? So there's various uh, definitions to it. So there's, there's the chronological one, which is you know, where modernism really starts, which is really after the war, just because the war itself really uh, halted multifamily construction, or just just a lot of construction in general, unless it was pertained to the war and supporting the war effort. You know, things had been halted. And then, of course, the Great Depression halted a lot of things. So there were early roots in modernism, as Blana mentions, but Great Depression and the war kind of halt that. And then it kind of reemerges after the war. And so that's kind of the chronological. And then it kind of goes up until about the late 70s, where you, where you start to see postmodernism starts to give rise. And so that's kind of the, a pretty good chronological barrier. And then there's this, the geographical, you have just the general boundaries of, of Capitol Hill being, you know, I-5 on the West and 23rd and Madison on the East and, and so forth. So. Right. And then with a lot of these buildings, then would you say that they're architecturally pure? A lot of the buildings that you found represented that they were a good example of their original design or had they been muddled or changed? Well, yes. But by subsequent owners and... I think we found that, and that, that was part of our motivation, we were noticing that some of the buildings were changed so much that unless you knew they were mid-century modern buildings, you would never tell. And they were remodeled in a way that was inconsistent with the original design. And for me, the most powerful example is the Dakar on Summit. Okay. It's a building that had this beautiful wooden ornamentations on the side, and um and then one day I mentioned it to Tom and he said, well, you should go look at it now. And it was all replaced with corrugated iron. And I just almost fell down when I saw that. And so I understand that owners probably make these remodels because they want to attract, you know, younger residents or whatever, or perhaps they are, you know, perhaps to protect the building better from the rain, but we need to document them before they change. Gotcha. <laughs> Had you documented that building before the... Uh, not the, in a formal way. I yeah. have a few snapshots, but not anything that I would... Not as detailed as I'd like it to be. Uh, another thing that was kind of interesting is this um, This project started during the advent of COVID. And so I know that you... I know that constrained, you know, like, your approach. Like, I believe you use Google Earth more than... I mean, we're all kind of locked in our rooms for that period of time. So how did that affect the project? Yeah, so I, I just decided to do it completely from home just to, you know, reduce my contact out and about and whatnot. And yeah, so I just basically would use the street view and kind of go on the north-south streets, go up and down those, and then stopping at each of the east-west ones, you know, ducking in there a little bit and 
going back on my north-south uh, zigzagging path through the entire neighborhood. And uh, I would just stop at anything that generally looked like it was mid-century. And then I would look it up online uh, to confirm the date because uh, King County has a uh, tool called Parcel Viewer that has every single property in the county that you can just click on and it says what the construction date is. And so I just go through and just log all of those. And then how many buildings did you discover using that approach that sort of fell into the geographical and historical confines of the survey? I would say initially, I think it was like 230 some, and then it expanded to like 360, because there were ones that we found after doing that initial survey a lot that if we were walking out and about, noticed some, and otherwise just while doing research, uh, just inadvertently discovering ones that had been demolished between now and the time that Google Street View was created. So, Well, so you mentioned that I wasn't aware of I was reading a blog that, that there's a slider feature on Google Earth where you can look at the view through time? Yes. Yeah, so the street view goes back to 2007. And uh, depending on which area, some areas were more documented than others. So not all of them have all the same ones. But as you go through, uh, you generally get anywhere from about 2007 to present. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did you notice buildings having changed in that Oh yeah, 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 definitely. There's there's ones that are in that range that have been uh, demolished since then, and then of course, as I was saying with the research, there are ones that were demolished before 2007 that I just happened to stumble across a newspaper article about it or something. So great. And then Lana, you were out. I assume that you did venture out with your yes. camera. So tell us a little about your approach. And you know, there was 200 or so building so did you photograph all of them or how did you no we no? couldn't i mean at first when when tom was in the process of you know fact finding building finding um if there was a building that was particularly curious then i would go and maybe do a quick study but then we had to go down to about 11 buildings that we wanted to document in detail but yeah, I mean, I had to be out in the field, but it's okay because, you know, I was after the buildings and not after the people. So I just put my mask on and, you know, take a bottle of water and go out. And it was actually a great activity for the pandemic because, yeah, it was not limited. Uh -huh. We were a bit limited when we were trying to visit the buildings because we had to wait for some buildings until like a, a Seattle Housing Authority building, we waited till uh, the folks were vaccinated as to not bring COVID in. And we both were eventually vaccinated too, which helped. But it was also good, you know, I kind of had this moment of reckoning because the country was, I mean, there was COVID and the country was going through some very massive changes. And I kind of questioned, like, what am I even doing? Like, how is this valuable? And then I realized, no, documenting architecture and documenting history is extremely valuable. And that really drove me and gave me sort of, gave me motivation and courage, even when it was entirely unclear where this pandemic was going. And and what is, and you said it's extremely valuable. So what is the value for you in doing that work? Well, the value is, is that I, I don't think cities can be preserved in amber, but by documenting what there is and bringing it to people's awareness, I think it, it wants folks to, it makes folks to want to be engaged and say, this is the beautiful architecture we have here, who lives here. This, well, for instance, this housing is relatively affordable. How can we make it so that people can continue living here and be able to afford it? So it, it's visual and it's social, and it's architectural, and it touches on a lot of different 
urban development subjects that perhaps are not are not apparent. Well, great. So I was going to ask you if you could shout out one building, maybe each, that you particularly love that's representative of, there's four eras, I think, that sort of encompass in your in your survey. And I'm just especially, and I think our listeners are interested in how they are illustrative of the society, like the changes in society that were happening at the time. So for the post-war era, from the mid-40s into the 50s, is there anything, is there a building that stuck out that was really illustrative of what was going on? Yeah, I think... It could be one of a couple of buildings, and we picked one of them, which was particularly for its style, but uh, there's there's one at, uh, what's it, 516 East Roy Street? I th- 514. 514, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's basically what you call like a minimal traditional, at least that's how we're defining it, and it kind of reflects the old style, early 20th century brick apartment building that everyone's familiar with, but it's a little less... Uh, decorated, and it's also one of the f- one of the first buildings that was constructed after the uh, wartime uh, limits or restrictions on uh, multifamily housing, which required them to be less than fifty families per acre, and you couldn't have any uh, elevators or interior corridors uh, in the buildings. And so, was that for austerity? Um, I. Th- you know, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what exactly the the idea was be- for that restriction. I mean, to me, it kind of always reflected like multifamily housing. Kind of felt like at least the wartime housing felt very much like militarized. Barracks. Like it's like be- yeah, it's like being in in the barracks or something <laughs> like that. And I think that's probably where the inspiration comes from. Uh-huh. Uh, but I haven't studied it enough to know exactly what the justifications were. If there were very practical ones, um, but uh, yeah. So that building, and then there's also the Red Lion. Those two buildings are kind of very representative of that sort of transition back to civilian uh, life, and uh, but then it's still they kind of call back to the way life was prior to this era, you know, the the traditional sort of brick building, and so. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then the fifties, post-war, the consumerism, the automobile was sort of the thing. So, are there buildings, or are there other trends that you know reflected here in Seattle? You know, from the fifties, are the buildings that you'd want to call out that are great examples of. A, that architecture, and B, tell us the story of what was going on in Seattle. Absolutely. Um, For the early 50s, I would say you have the ranch-style apartment building, which just basically reflects the single-family sort of suburban home of that time that was very popular, very horizontal. They tended to have pitched roofs or hipped roofs that just kind of really brought you down to, to ground level and also kind of is a way of connecting with the nature around you a bit. And um, the Camellia Manor, which is now a condo building, really, I thought, captured that really well. And also it being a garden court, it still kind of carries forward that uh, wartime you know, sort of building that doesn't have any interior corridors or elevators and has this nice, luscious sort of garden in the center. And then other ones that in that time would also be the rise of sort of the, what they call solid end wall, which is very literal. It's just, you kind of have these end walls that just are blank and there's certain like a material, like it'd be a blank brick wall or a stone wall at either end. Uh, But they tend to have these exterior corridors that are like motels, basically, and they tend to look over parking spaces. And so then, again, that's where you kind of get that sense. There's this uh, transition to being very automobile-oriented. Yeah. So those have where you see the doors from the the street, 
right? Yes. This is an apartment building mm-hmm. where you go into a lobby. Right, right. So, and those are very common all over the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then from the 1960s, mm-hmm. which was, I guess, the World's Fair was kind of the big thing, was one big thing that was happening in Boeing. Was yeah, Boeing. yeah, the Boeing boom. And then you have I-5 being constructed as well. Um, there's, there's definitely a lot going on there. And uh, things that come up in the 60s, there's one major thing that predates it, which is the 1957 zoning code change. And one of the major things that really affects multifamily housing is the requirement for more parking. And so these buildings, they get larger and they have larger parking lots. And that's especially apparent in the Viewmont apartments, which is, I think, 1958 or 59, so not quite 60s. But there are other ones that follow that kind of have that same sort of model of just having these big parking lots, and they're just really sprawling. Which is, again, it's kind of ironic because Capitol Hill, it's, it's, I think it's classified as an urban village. And, you know, currently the city wants no, you know, is encouraging development with no parking. Yeah. So, but that right. wasn't the case in the 1960s, just the opposite. Absolutely, yeah. Just because the, you know... Automobiles really took off in this in this time period, and everything became oriented around that. Especially with I five, you know, everybody was getting ready to drive because they thought, you know, with I five they'd be able to get anywhere anytime. Why do you think the city took an interest in specifically zoning out, you know, unparked buildings and wanting to have lots of parking? I'm just curious. Why do you think that became regulated into the building code that there needed to be more parking? You know, I'm not I'm not sure exactly what the impetus were. I mean, I could certainly imagine more things just kind of generally as people are getting more automobiles, uh, people are struggling to find places to park and they probably get a lot of complaints. So they got to, you know, respond to their constituents and come up with plans that improve things. Uh, But also, you know, you could also think special interests, people who uh, you know, automobile highway interest, maybe, yeah, yeah, highway construction. I mean, there's there's all types of, uh, you know, areas that you can imagine the reasons why they would take this interest in pushing that policy forward, yeah. I think in general, the time was kind of, I view it as a time of kind of a big expansion. Environmental impact was not very much in the political awareness and kind of the thought that we can expand out as much as we like and... It was the space race, so we were trying to ex- literally expand out of the world. Yeah. 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 So anything else, any other buildings from the 60s that sort of came to mind or that were fun or interesting? Well, the, the 60s ones would be the Thunderbird. That was 65. And that was uh, a, a style that was captured, or that emerged in that time called Shed uh, style architecture. And basically it has these really like sharp, dynamic roof lines that don't match up and also they tend to have like vertical wood siding, that sort of thing. Um, and so Thunderbird, and also really odd window placements too. And it kind of just gets really, really kind of odd and all over the place, sharp angles and such. And so that's definitely one of them that I feel like captures. That's the 60s. Yeah. There's, there's like Uji and psychedelia and all kinds of things going on that mm-hmm. are reframing the boundaries of yeah, absolutely. consciousness. So. Uh-huh. I think there's also an impact of regionalism. So where perhaps in, in a different climate, the same building would have stucco. In Seattle, it has wood siding, sort of, you know, as a tribute to Pacific Rim and the forests. Yeah. So you mentioned the Margaret from the 50s. So another question is, is these the names of all these buildings? You mentioned the Thunderbird from the 60s. So a lot of the names of the some of these buildings, particularly from the 50s, seem like they're names of people, like Margaret or... 
or uh, conjunctions of different people's names. Um, yeah, I'm like just wondering. Ronnie Lee yeah. and Beverly Ray. Well, I think Margaret wasn't Margaret at the yeah, start. Yeah, not originally. Uh, it was originally the Belbane, which was uh, one of the original owners of the Margaret. Her name was Marie Baines. And so Bell being for Belmont, because that's the street it's on. And uh, she didn't own it very long. And over time, there was a one resident. Uh, her name was, I can't remember her last name, but her first name was Margaret. And she lived in the building from 1963 until at least 2010 because there was a write-up about her in the Seattle Times in 2010 and uh, just talking about just the long life that she had lived there and how important she was to her neighbors. And uh, and she was just a very important uh, figure there that, you know, the owners decided to rename the building in her honor. So, yeah. Oh. Sometimes I think a lot of these, uh, the apartment, the first ones maybe name them after their children because mm-hmm. it just, yeah. they're like names that were common in, in the 50s, for example. Yeah, I, I can I can certainly uh, tell you one of those is the, and I always forget its current name because it's kind of a generic name. It's like Capital East or something, but it's with the Benmar uh, oh, yeah. apartments, uh, which are at 315 23rd. Uh, and so that was a, a building owned initially owned and designed by uh, Benjamin F. McAdoo Jr., who's the first black architect registered in Washington State. And uh, he built that and named it after his two uh, children, uh, Ben and Marsha. And he built it specifically to offer uh, unrestricted tenancy to uh, challenge racist housing practices at the time. So really... Well, good. Well, that's a good segue. We still have to get into the 70s of these buildings, but Capitol Hill has had a, you know, over over history, there have been exclusionary practices, official and unofficial, preventing people of color, black people from owning or even renting property. So I I would imagine, Tom, you have a little bit of knowledge, kind of, um, I remember the Seattle Times had an article maybe a year ago about a unofficial effort among a lot of property owners on Capitol Hill to sign some sort of petition that they wouldn't sell to to black people. Absolutely, yeah. So in the 20s, uh, there was a re-emerging effort to restrict who could own and occupy property throughout the city. And a lot of, as you said, uh, residents, they kind of came together and um, tried to convince all their neighbors to write uh, restrictive covenants into basically into their deeds. So it'd be legally, you know, when they go to sell this property, they're not allowed to sell it to anybody who, who basically isn't white. And uh, it, it didn't apply to every single property. They didn't get to get that much control of the neighborhood, but there were hundreds, hundreds of properties that this applied to. And uh, they all had a time limit of a, roughly about 20 years and uh, yeah, so that's 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 kind of where it really starts to take place. And then it's also the 1923 zoning code, which is where single family housing zones were first created. There was a lot of that sort of racist impetus that went into that. And then of course, in the 1930s, you have redlining. So was Benjamin McAdoo successful in kind of breaking the block there? And was he the investor as well? Was he the owner of the apartment building? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he was, anything he was, else you can share? Because that's yeah. great. He was very successful in his early career with building very small, affordable, single-family homes throughout uh, Madrona and the Central District. And uh, so then he continued to apply that towards some uh, multifamily buildings, especially in Capitol Hill. And 
starting with the Ben Mar, which is kind of right at what we consider the border of Capitol Hill now. I'm not sure what they would have considered it necessarily back then. Um, but then he kind of gradually started moving further west into the neighborhood, building more of, of multifamily buildings. And uh, then he even established his office right on Olive Way at Boylston in a single family house, and he modified it. And so uh, I would say he certainly was uh, successful in this regard. And I know that oftentimes, and was the case for him, is when he bought a house that he first lived in, in Montlake, uh, he had a Jewish friend who, you know, officially bought it and then transferred it over to him because all the neighbors would be up in arms about it. And so you would find somebody who could, uh, who could uh, facilitate it for you. And so, yeah. So interesting question. So the, so the single family zoning, it sounded like that started kind of citywide in the twenties, but, um, it's obviously a hot topic right now. A lot of like the state of California has, I think, outlawed single family zoning period. So it no longer can exist. Because by limiting the size of a lot or a, to a single family, obviously it increases the cost of housing and it, in effect, can further racism or just exclusion of people of lower economic status, regardless of their race. So I know Seattle has upended that zoning by allowing up to three units on a lot, and now the city is looking at four. But what's interesting to me about these apartment buildings is that if you go, knowing that these practices, these zoning practices started in the 20s, but you can see apartment buildings from the 20s, 30s, all throughout that are sort of sprinkled pretty liberally throughout Capitol Hill, including like the most, you know, traditionally expensive millionaire's row. There's old apartment buildings that are right sprinkled in these single family houses. And I don't know why, how or why that occurred, but to me, it's a fascinating feature of the neighborhood is that you do have large single family mansions that are literally 7,000 square feet. And you could have like a six unit apartment building built in the 50s, you know, three houses over. So... Part of my thinking was maybe these were people that owned these single-family houses that wanted to buy little investment properties nearby, or I don't know. But I think that's part of it. And Diana James actually wrote an excellent book about early apartments in Seattle. Some of those were a lot of those brick apartments that we now enjoy so much. And I think it was pretty much like now, if somebody was selling a property and a developer could buy it, and a lot of times they had to really prove their case in front of the neighbors that they will build a nice building that would attract, you know, so to say nice residents, whatever that meant, but eventually expanded. Hmm. So the 1970s, um, so kind of fast forwarding here to the 1970s. So what buildings that did you encounter with your survey that were good representatives of the 70s and what were the 70s in Seattle? I think it starts off with just sort of a continuation of brutalism. So you have the Shannon condominiums, which kind of like are it's I believe that that is the tallest building in the neighborhood, and it was built in 1971, which is kind of interesting because it's after the Boeing bust. But I think the project actually started maybe right before the Boeing bust occurred, and, and where's that? Finish it. That is on uh, Belmont and Mercer, I believe. And uh, yeah, so there's there's some uh, brutalism kind of continues into the early 70s. And then after, you know, really the the stock market crashed, the gas shortage, of, you know, uh, in the 70s, uh, not a lot of construction happens in the neighborhood and probably not much throughout uh, Seattle, I would imagine. Um, but it kind of just tends to be sort of smaller scale versions of pre-existing styles. So like there was a kind of a semi-dingbat that was uh, built in the neighborhood in the 70s. And, and so, what, so, so what is a dingbat? Oh, yeah. And so that's that's kind of, if we jump back sort of a, a second, 
that's a style that emerged in the 50s, kind of mid to late 50s. It comes out of California, and it gets its name Dingbat from the what's usually a decorative feature that would be on the wall. It would be like a star or like, uh, you know, um, like a planet or something like that. But in the case of Seattle, they tend to be just decorative words like the Margaret or things like that. It's more text-based from what I've noticed in Seattle. But anyway, uh, one of the defining features is basically parking uh, that's built up under the uh, apartments. And that styles curiously carried over into the 70s but the parking sort of is only like halfway under so you only like cover like a third or half of your car it, it doesn't you don't get to cover your car entirely so it's very reflective of the times of being like we're going to build something super minimalist but we don't really have a new style in mind so we're kind of going to do this but scale it back a bit so okay yeah okay great so lon i'm just curious you are out taking photographs so tell me what kind of weird and wonderful things you encountered dealing with these buildings and a related question, did you go inside them during this documentation or were they exterior only? Mostly exterior. We cast several calls for people who either live in those buildings or know someone who does. And we got to go into a few of them, but some of them we just never got any traction. But well, What discoveries did you have that you know, made you appreciate the neighborhood more? Well, first and foremost, it's the building themselves, the buildings themselves, because the more you engage with a building, the more you discover about it. You either get to really appreciate the symmetry or the intentional lack of symmetry. And the textures, the closer you, you get, you can appreciate the ashlar stone and uh, the stucco, the cement. And depending on the time of day you go, you can see how the texture interacts with the sun and sometimes creates amazing patterns that you would not see unless you happen to be there at that moment with the sun being exactly in the position it is. But also the landscaping can be really remarkable and really complements the buildings. And also just weird quirky things. Like there's one building on um, Belmont and Roy, and if you look on the side of it, there's not intended to be a patio, but you look and somebody put a rug and a chair and like an artificial ficus and, and it's a patio now. So it really shows you how people adapt buildings to, to what they need and how buildings kind of just like grow with people. So what about the architects? So a lot of these have been sort of like no name kind of commercial buildings. I think that's how we've seen them over the years. Just They were just sort of thrown up without much kind of architecture in the sense of an uh, architect who was making a statement. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that a lot of these buildings have always kind of receded into the background of the city for me. I've lived in one of them myself. And you mentioned McAdoo as one of the architects that contributed to this genre. But are there any, during your research, did you learn anything about who the architects were that contributed or the builders who contributed to the, this whole genre of building? Yeah, there were definitely architects that were very prolific in the neighborhood uh, who even also had ties to the neighborhood. So you have uh, like Blaine McCool. He went to Seattle Central College. He took courses there uh, and he built a lot of buildings in the neighborhood. And then he he eventually brought in Charles Morgan into his firm. Uh, and also he did a lot of, and actually Charles Morgan is still still around. I just, I just talked to him uh, a couple weeks ago, which was great. And uh, some of our, the, of our favorite or the buildings that we picked out to look at, you know, these are some of the names that come up with so, so those. And there's Ted LaCourse. He did a lot of the uh, luxury towers that are on Belmont. He was involved in those. John Y. Sato is another one. He did the Ramayana, 
which is kind of this sort of East Asian themed brutalist building uh, that's sort of, it's apartments and they're kind of luxury, but not to the extent of say the Lamplighter or the Shannon, but kind of in between. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a few, I, I do think that there's definitely a sense that there is a craft to the architecture that kind of continues from, you know, the twenties, you have these very prominent architects, but that still continues in the mid-century period. And whereas, or as maybe nowadays we don't, we don't really recognize architects as much in the new buildings that we get today, but maybe it's just because we don't follow it as much, but uh, yeah. Great. And then, so Capitol Hill is sort of a microcosm of the city, but there were other neighborhoods, I would assume, that also had similar sort of burst of uh, new architecture, these apartment buildings in the the mid-century area. I think Queen Anne is one of them. The University District, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 They all sort of have a similar, that sort of footprint from the 50s and 60s and 70s yeah. of these and, buildings. And with Queen Anne, of course, being, uh, you know, especially Lower Queen Anne being so close to the World's Fairgrounds, you know, that was a, just a major area for development. And then for Capitol Hill is this that we had this amazing view of the fairgrounds and the Space Needle. So people were so eager to develop uh, in response to that. So Yeah, it's, I, I, I've been following kind of some of the discussions around zoning over the last 10 years and, they, you know, that wanting to maintain that view from like Volunteer Park of down toward... Across, it's an amazing view that you can see the Space Needle from Capitol Hill, but there's this idea you don't want to crowd that Space Needle view from Capitol Hill still today. So anything else about occupants, about the people who have lived in some of these apartment buildings that are new, noteworthy? Absolutely, yeah. I, I can I can say uh, the Benmar was very important for a number of prominent uh, black professionals. Kind of that's where they that well, maybe one of them, their their first uh, home that they lived in while they just got out of college or or, or while they were in college. And so you have uh, Gertrude Peoples, who is a UW athletic advisor. I don't know if she's still in that role today, but uh, she was also a recruiter and she founded uh, the country's first academic support uh, office for student athletes. So uh, she she lived there in the, in uh, I think in the, in Maybe she was one of the ones who lived there when the, when the building first opened, yeah, in the, like the first couple of years. And then there's also another uh, significant architect, Leon Bridges, and he worked for McAdoo for a while and um, lived th- lived in the Benmar for a bit. He designed a number of Catholic churches with, a, with another firm in Seattle, and he also did the YMCA building at 23rd and Olive. And uh, he was also on the King County Planning Commission and... Um, there were a lot of interesting people that actually that lived at the, the lamplighter. You have Robert LeBlanc. He was the engineer responsible for like the curved beams of the Space Needle, and the sort of building legend among residents is that uh, there's the uh, the back patio which has a pool that almost looks like an arrow point but rounded, and it kind of points to the Space Needle. And so the residents believe that there was a connection between the LeBlancs and the Space Needle there, that that was purposeful because of because of that. But he, they didn't, LeBlanc and his wife didn't actually live in the building until 1968. So I'm still having to do a little more digging to see what the, the possible connection was, if there was something specific as that. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Anything you want to share, Lana, about the people that you encountered as the photographer for the project? Well, I think... When I look back sort of at my own life, I think part of what really made me realize the importance of architecture, not just as shelter, but also as sort of a builder and preserver of community, is I grew up in this very large, very old, sprawling apartment complex in downtown Moscow. Mm. 
And there was a community there, and there were families of all economic backgrounds, and uh, it was, I mean, all most housing was public when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And then they started, they did this this thing that I, I can't really talk about it from, again, in, a, in an educated way from the economic sense, but what they did is a lot of people were coming to Moscow to work in the factories, and there was a labor shortage and they needed to house people. So what they did is they took people who lived for generations in these older buildings, and they offered them new apartments in other neighborhoods. And they put the new folks in these older apartments, which were not considered as convenient. But what they didn't realize is that the community got ruined in the process. So in the span of maybe two years, I lost all my friends as a kid. So it got ruined because, like, wholesale, everybody just physically moved, and so you yeah, lost the connections? pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, like, the grandparents and parents stayed connected by phone, but as a kid, you don't really have that. Mm. And there was this sense of, it's just that it wasn't just the people, it was also the place. And it wasn't just the place, it was also the people. Mm. And I kind of remembered that. And I never really thrived in the new place that we moved to. It was comfortable. It was a beautiful building. But I just somehow, it's like I was uprooted and never really rooted again, Mm. pretty much until I came to Capitol Hill. And so I know that buildings matter. And then I also see Capitol Hill that for uh, for a few decades was a refuge for uh, gay people and working people and just artists who wanted cheap rent and their own community. Mm-hmm. And I certainly feel that sense, even though Capitol Hill is very different than perhaps it was 20 or 25 years ago. This is the first time in 30 years that I feel at home. And when I see people being displaced, then I see that again, that rug is being pulled from underneath right, me. Right. And that's a big p- part of what I'm trying to convey. It's not just sort of the cold documentation. This is what a building looks like, but also here is the here is the building that not only creates a, a visual presence, it also creates shelter and inspiration. And I think there's been, there have been studies done by the National Trust for Historic Preservation that shows how historic architecture draws coffee shops and cultural centers and people in general. And, 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 and people come to neighborhoods not because they have beautiful new buildings. A lot of times people come because there's that variety of architecture and because there's this little coffee shop in this corner, you know, building that was built 200 years ago. And I see that a lot of um, youth both LGBT youth and um, young artists still come to Capitol Hill. And I'm an artist and I share a studio here. And and so when I see that being displaced, that that is scary. And also I want that to stop. Mm. So, so I think there's a connection here. and Between and the I, people and the place. Between and the people, the place, and not just... And health. And that what this place represents. And, and, I, and I don't want this place to become... A monoculture, mm-hmm. not in terms of the kind of people who live here and not in terms of the kind of architecture we exist in. Well, and thank you for doing your work because what you are, um, even though a lot of these buildings are changing or some are being demolished, by documenting them, it creates a memory of them and um, a record so that people can at least know it was there in the, in the future. And then my, in my, from my perspective, also creating an awareness and I've seen, I, I've heard people say, well, I never looked at this building the way I look at it now after I've seen this photography. And and now they want to, perhaps they will write to the city and say, hey, this building that, you know, you want to build in this place, I wanted to 
be more in line with the architectural style or like, hey, my neighbors have been displaced. Why don't we build more truly affordable housing? So in terms of working in this together, though, I, I am really curious how working on this project did change your perception and appreciation of the community as it relates to these buildings, which fill up a lot of the streets. Yeah, I think kind of echoing what I was sort of saying before that a certain you know style of architecture that I was kind of resistant to, I, I felt like it it hindered the the older stock of of, of buildings and any time like you know, development would happen. If it was a mid-century building, it would de- demolish. It'd be like, oh, at least it's not one of the, you know, really classic buildings. And now I, I'm kind of like, I really, I really have a much more understanding and appreciation of its place in the neighborhood and sort of just kind of telling a more complete story of the neighborhood uh, from, from its founding until today and how important uh, that, that the role it plays and how these buildings, you know, they tended to be built as cheap as they possibly could be and in many cases, in order to provide, you know, more affordable housing, especially early on, you know, when you have a lot of veterans coming back home from the war, you know, needing places to live and things like that. Great. And then we ask our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest. It doesn't need to be on Capitol Hill or one of these buildings, but is there a place that you deeply care about in the region that you'd like to go to, that you'd like to share? You know, I don't know why this question always stumps me so much. <laughs> Pacific Northwest is beautiful, and I love a lot of places, but I think, you know, Capitol Hill just struck a real chord within me. And I once had a therapist who said, you always look for a geographical cure. You think if you move someplace else, you're going to like, everything's going to be fine. I'm like, yeah, but some places really do make us feel better. And I'm just going to take the easy way out and say Capitol Hill is that place for me as a whole. I always want to come back. I feel very good. I've built community around myself, which again, in the f- for the first time in in decades. And when I go to the grocery store, I meet people I know and I say hi. And that's it for me. Tom? Yeah, I think generally that is the case for me just because of how much I've invested in the neighborhood. But uh, to kind of maybe throw in a little bit more variation here. I can certainly say that there's definitely places all around the the region that uh, often call me back out. And, uh, you know, there's there's certainly places I've gone hiking more often than once, like uh, Baker Lake is one of uh, my favorite places to go to. Just uh, the water there is beautiful and all the hiking around there is just great. And you got the view of the, of the mountain as well. And yeah, so... There's there's just a lot of, I think there's, especially the nature, just generally speaking, there's just so many really special places when you go there, you kind of have this intimate sort of connection with, with the place that I think is also very important to me as well. Well, good. Well, thank you guys for being our guest today. There are a few opportunities for our guests who are interested to learn more to get involved. One of them is a walking tour for the Capitol Hill Modern Project. And I believe that's on November 21st. And how would they learn about it? Uh, you can go to capitalhillpass.org slash events. And we don't have the event pages up yet, but they will be up in the coming days. So just uh, you know, check in within the next week or so, and you probably should see something up there. And you can sign up to uh, you know, get tickets and get additional information about the, the tours. Awesome. And then, Lana, you have some, do you have some current exhibits of your work up or coming up? Yes. So, you know, live exhibits are starting up again. Yes. So I have a couple uh, small exhibits in uh, restaurants. I have work up 
in a bar and restaurant called Damn the Weather in Pioneer Square. And I have some Capitol Hill photography in Bellevue in Belden Cafe. All right. Wow. So for our listeners in Bellevue, you can actually experience a little bit of Capitol Hill. Yeah, Right, exactly. go and get have some good coffee. And then you're also building an artist collaborative. Yes, I'm part of an artist studio. We're located at 1100 East Pike. And uh, we open for the Art Walk. Our new studio name is Six of Pikes. And uh, us and our neighbor's liminal space started um, welcoming people again for Capitol Hill Art Walk. So it's every second Thursday, 5 to 9. There is visual art, there is jewelry, there is music and video, and everyone is welcome. Awesome. Good. So this project that you're working on culminates in December, and you're looking for funding for kind of to bring it forward into the future? Yeah, yeah. We definitely would love to continue this project, and uh, you know, we're definitely keeping our eyes peeled for additional funding opportunities. So You said that you're dangerously in pro bono territory. I understand this is a labor of love, not necessarily for profit. If you would like to make a donation to the Capitol Hill Historical Society, they can do that at what URL? CapitolHillPass.org slash donate. Yeah, we encourage donations. And um, of course, you can follow the society by signing up for their newsletter as well. Absolutely, online. yeah. And then, um, Lana, you've got an Instagram yeah, we both, the Historical Society and I post, and we will post more of the project photos. But generally, my most current work is on Instagram, and it's Lana underscore Blinderman. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Join us next time for a conversation with Seattle-based landscape architect Richard Hartlich. At his firm, Land Morphology, he's been creating rich, emotive places across the country, including Seattle's Apple Store at University Village and the upcoming Waterfront Park in downtown Seattle, as well as countless public and private botanical gardens across the country. If you're into gardening, you'll want to come here, Richard. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of EK on the Go. Daniel Gunther is our sound engineer, administrative support from Mary Christine, and we're recorded here in the U-District at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a place in Seattle that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to start a conversation. Thank you.